0: Storehouse Dallas and uh, Exodus twenty five. Starting at verse sixteen, he's <clears throat> kind of carrying over from a thought from verse fifteen, but You'll get where I'm going as we go on. And you shall make, and you shall put the ark in the testimony. You shall put into the ark the testament which I shall give you. And you shall make a mercy seat. Everybody say mercy seat. Mercy. Of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of a hammered work. Everybody say hammered work. At the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub at the one end of the cherub, and the other end you shall make the of of one piece of the mercy seat at the two ends, and the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. Now... Um, Go to um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 44. Starting at verse 10. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house, they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. Everybody say for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity in the house of Israel. Therefore, I have sworn against them, declares the Lord, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. And they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to me, near, near, near to any of my holy things, or so the things that are most holy. But you shall bear; they shall bear their shame and their abominations, what they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house of all of his service and of all that should be done in it. That sounds crazy. These guys, their judgment was the ministry. But to the Levitical Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood that clears the Lord. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. And it shall be that when they enter into the gates of the inner court, they should be clothed with linen garments. And wool shall not be on them while they are menacing in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be upon their heads, and linen garments shall be upon their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything that makes them sweat. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, would you <clears throat> release wisdom and revelation in our midst? Help me to share my heart and convey what you want to release in a powerful way, and help me, help us, Lord. Help us, give us the grace to respond to your voice in this season for what you're doing here at Storehouse, to be a place where the ark of your presence dwells, to be a place that's a carrier of glory, God. Take us from the anointing to the glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so... this is like one of the most vulnerable messages I've ever put together, right? I've shared it maybe three or four times. I shared it for the first time at Christ for the Nations about a year ago. And um, I fear for us as a church, at large, especially in America right now, what we've done is we've allowed a consumer mentality to creep into the church. And it's basically distorted and robbed us of all the appreciation that we need to bestow upon God just for who He is, All right? And uh, it's easy for that to happen, especially with our with the way our culture is designed. You know, before a child, when, before a child ever learns how to read, but when they're five years old, they already know how to recognize over 300 name brands. Because we have to to keep our economy going, and I'm a good red-blooded capitalist, believe me. All right, so don't get me wrong. But to keep our economy going, because we don't have a gold standard, the way do you keep the economy going? You have to. It's all about the velocity of money. All right, it's all about acculturating consumers. We need consumers to keep the economy flowing. Right, and so <laughs> that's to be understood. So, you know, basically there's these three or four approaches to, that we have to God one. Is the consumer thing. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, one is, you know, life over God. Life over God, that's where, you know, you don't need God, you just need a good set of principles to live by. That's what the, the atheist basically says, right? But then we also have the divine atheist in the church that so we say, hey, we just need a good set of Bible principles to live by. In other words, we worship the, the book of the Lord instead of the Lord of the book, right? And so, <clears throat> but all those, all those principles break down at some point because you need to have a relationship to listen to the one who wrote the book. You got to have that. You have life over God, then you have life under God. Life under God is that person is always living in this place of fear, thinking that God's going to crush him every five minutes. And so uh, they focus so much on living a strenuous life of keeping everything perfect, everything intact with their relationship with God, thinking that he's going to crush him one day. Uh, it's like the, 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 the person who's... Uh, in in some village and they want to worship the rain God just so that they can get uh, rain or whatever. And they always trying to worship this capricious God. But when the formula breaks down and the rain doesn't come, you know, it just brings a lot of, (laughs) you know, hopelessness. That's what happens for the person who has this life under God kind of um, lifestyle where they live in fear of God crushing them every five minutes. And then when everything doesn't line up, they turn turn it back. So the, the formula breaks down in other words. All right. Then you have life for God. That's the one that you know that has gotten me a lot of times. A life for God one. That's where we focus all on what we can do for God. You know, I'm gonna build you a water well in Africa, I'm gonna end human trafficking, and I'm gonna end abortion. We focus so much on our causes that we forget about Christ. And when the law doesn't get passed or the Supreme Court doesn't do what you want them to do or the girl that you've been helping in trafficking, sex trafficking goes right back to the prince, and, and something else happens to them, you get disillusioned and you get into that place when the, you focus more on the cause instead of Christ. Happens, happens to the best of us. But the, to me, one of the most dangerous ones is life from God. And that's the whole consumer mentality. Right? That's the consumer mentality. So what helped me understand as I was re- reading this book, and this guy was talking about the difference uh, with, with having, well, the problem with having a consumer mentality. What happens when you have a consumer mentality, everything becomes commodified. And when things become commodified, it's not about the intrinsic value of it anymore. It's not about the inherent value of it any longer. It's all about what something can do for you. It's all about the utility of it. Everything serves a utilitarian purpose, right? Give an example, like if I was a farmer and I had a a potato farm, all the potatoes that we had on our kitchen table in the mornings, those represented what? The conversations that we had while we were eating hash browns in the morning. They represented the conversations that we were having when we ate mashed potatoes in the evening, right? So those have an inherent value. They mean something. But any surplus potatoes that I have that I can trade for more, um, trade for more food, or trade it for more um, uh, for money or whatever, those potatoes now serve a utilitarian purpose. It's all about usefulness. It's all about what I can get out of them. All right? Nothing wrong with that. All right? But here's what happens over time: we lose the backstory of the things that we use just for utility. All right? And so. The guy was talking about this, talked about how he was in Cambodia, and he gave this example. He said he was in Cambodia, and he was going to help out this, this missionary there was there who had an orphanage for kids who had been abandoned um, there because of, because of their parents. But the abandonment it didn't happen the way he thought that the abandonment happened. So as they're driving to the orphanage, they're going by all these huge like warehouses that looked like they were you know, technologically advanced and all that, but they're all a barren. They're dormant, there's no one in them. And he asked us, so what, what are these? He said, oh, these are all huge factories that were used by um, Fortune 500 firms back in America. Used for, by Fortune 500 firms back in America, but another rogue government came along and said, hey, we can give you a better labor contract than Cambodia can, and so what did they do? They shut down the factory overnight. They shut it down overnight, it doesn't make sense to you and I, but for them, they made so much money on what they saved by shutting everything down and building the factory in the other place. That's what they did. But what about the women who worked in that factory? Well, all those women who worked in that factory and now, now they became very susceptible to, you know, the, 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 the sex traffickers that was there in the area. It didn't start out as sex trafficking. It started off as just I'll loan you some money until you can get you can get by then it went from loaning money to well you haven't paid me back yet and the interest is growing so you got to figure out another way to pay me back and that's how it turned into sex trafficking and then over time those women connected with some of the farmers who were coming in to sell their wares those men contracted hiv they took it back to their spouses so this man had an orphanage in this village because an aids epidemic broke out in the community AIDS epidemic broke out in the community largely in part because some Fortune 500 company saw the utilitarian purpose for the people that were there and didn't care about the intrinsic value of the people there. There was something to be used and not something to be appreciated. And so this huge vacuum gets left in that area because they cared more about what they could do for them. And so this AIDS epidemic broke out in the area, but that's, you know, for the Fortune 500 firm, but when we're at the Gap or we're at whatever store, Walmart or whatever, we're looking through the clothes rack. We're looking at the clothes. We're not thinking about where they came from. We're not thinking about the backstory. We're just thinking about, man, does this go with that purse or those jeans or whatever? Does this make a good gift for so-and-so? We're just thinking about what it could do for us. And that's what commodification looks like. We could care less about the backstory, all right? Here's the deal. That's what it looks like when we commodify God. When we commodify God, we could care less about the backstory. We care more about what he could do for us instead of who he is. You know that little story that you have about the cross? I mean, that's that's really powerful. And, I mean, it really touched me. But hey, do you have, like, something you can do for my hip? Uh, do you have, like, some principles I can use to help me with my marriage? you have, like, some concept business-wise that I can use uh, that can help me with my business. In other words, we, care, we start caring more about what God can do for us instead of who he really is. And when we get to that place, <clears throat> we care more about what he can do instead of who he really is. And you see that in scripture. And I think the way we've got to where we are right now is because we don't understand the purpose of the anointing. We don't understand the purpose of the anointing. And that's what I'm going to talk about the difference between the anointing and the glory. <laughs> There's a difference. So we always hear the word anointing and uh, hear with someone talk about somebody who's anointed or a person who's anointed. That's awesome. But first and foremost, do you know what the anointing was in the Bible? First and foremost, perfume. It's perfume. Exodus 30, I think it's Exodus 30, 30. Um, God tells Moses, he says, go and get uh, these different elements, some oil and this other perf- uh, 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 acacia and some other things, myrrh. Bring them all together. He tells them the elements and he says, get the apothecary to put this together. Another translation says, get the perfumer. An apothecary is a perfumer. In other words, a perfumer was to put this fragrance together. And it was going to go in the temple. It was going to cause on the priests. They were anointing kings with it. And the Bible says that anyone who made this, who wasn't ordained to put it together, they would be cut off from Israel. That means that they would be taken out and killed and the whole family line killed. In other words, cut off. <laughs> and at first when I saw that, I thought, man, that's that's a little that's a little rough. But again, <laughs> God's trying to get his point across in other ways. You have to understand the type in the shadows of what is the meaning he's trying to convey there in the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament. What he's saying is this. There is a set apart fragrance that is meant for people who are in an intimate relationship with the Lord, and it's the anointing, right? And yeah, it, it carries power. It brings all that. It's like going from a handsaw to a buzzsaw, you know, in, in ministry. It puts the supernatural on your. It puts the super on your natural in ministry, right? Makes your preaching better, your teaching better, your singing a whole lot better, right? For for most of y'all, not for me. I'm still in the Joyful noise category. <laughs> no matter how anointed I, I get, right? <laughs> but, um, but it's first and foremost perfume. So, so it's all about this anointing that was put on people to be set apart in this intimate relationship with him. So to help me understand what this was like to have that kind of set-apart fragrance, of the Lord had me watching TV. I would look at the TV one day, And uh, I turn it on, and it was right in the middle of the study on this, actually. And I'm looking at this guy named Robin Leach. Y'all remember Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Right? It's like Yo! MTV Cribs except with a British accent. Right? Right? I'm watching this guy, and uh, and he's talking about this guy who was a bazillionaire. He's like a really, really wealthy man. And he was uh, getting married again, and uh, (laughs) he had this wife. And he decided for his wife, he wanted to do something special for her. So he decided to buy a perfume factory. So he buys a perfume factory that was already intact and working. He buys that perfume factory and that company and uses it to make a fragrance just for he and his wife. All right? Then he got Yves Saint Laurent to come along, was a designer, and design a fragrance just for them. All right. And then he bought the rights to it away from Saint Laurent, so that no one else could wear that fragrance on the planet. At first I thought, man, what a waste. And the Lord said to me, no, it's not. He said, think about it. When that woman walks into the room, even before she ever comes in the room, if the wind or the air conditioning is blowing the right way, as soon as she walks in the room, he knows that his beloved has come into his midst. There's not another woman on the earth that smells like that. Right. So house in the Hamptons, what, 15 million dollars, blue hope diamond or whatever, 30 million dollars. But a fragrant relationship that can't be reproduced. Priceless. That's what the anointing represents. It represents the set apart, fragrant relationship. Right. So imagine that woman going across the room. Let's say her husband asked her to go across the room to you know, get him a cup of coffee. As she walks across the room, the essence of the fragrance goes throughout the whole place People turn their heads and watch this woman. She grabs her cup of coffee. And as they're looking at her, she takes it right back to the object of her affection. She takes it back to the beloved. That's what we're supposed to look like. As we minister to him, we are going to draw attention. We're going to draw people to us because of the fragrance, because of the anointing that's on our life. But once we capture their attention, we're going to lead them back to the object of our affection. Right? Let's say he asked her to go give a cup of coffee to a friend. Same thing. As she's walking across the room. She's doing it in his name. She's serving somebody else. But while she's, while she's pleasing her husband, she's serving other people. That's what happens when you're anointed. When you're anointed, you will seek to please the Lord and you will serve people at the same time. All right. But what happens is this. Sometimes with the anointing. You can use the anointing to serve yourself. And you can use the anointing to please people. And here's what happens. If you seek to please people, sooner or later, you'll stop serving God. (laughs) When you're anointed, you, the deal is this. When you please God, you will serve people. But when you start trying to please people, sooner or later, you'll stop serving God. And you have to watch that. You have to watch that with the anointing. And so there's actually a time in scripture where this literally happened. It's in uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 44. He had a time where people were anointed and they were using the anointing to serve themselves and to please people. So. Zechariah 44 and 10, he says, but the Levites who went far from me, who went astray from, in Israel, who went astray after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they should be menaced Listen, they should be ministers in my sanctuary. So these priests focus more on pleasing the people instead of the Lord. The children of Israel want to worship all the other idols around them, including Yahweh, and they help them do it. So the Lord says, OK, here's what you're going to do. You should be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversights to the gates of the house and ministering in the house, and they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifices for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before their idols and became a sum of the block in the house of the Lord. I've sworn, because of the Lord, they shall bear the punishment and they shall not come near to me as a priest. In other words, you'll have no intimacy. They shall not come near to me, nor they come any of my holy things to the things of the most holy. They shall bear the shame for their abominations. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of my house and all of its service and all that shall be done in it. You understand what's happening there? He's saying they have to minister in the house of the Lord. He's judging them. He's judging them in their ministry. And he says, your punishment for what you did in leading Israel astray is you're going to have ministry, but you're not going to have an intimacy with me. That's a scary thing. And he says, they have to minister for the people. You know what he means when he says, for the people? In other words, he had to do it for, they have to minister for their approval. They have to minister for their acceptance. They have to minister for... Um, their uh, their approval, their acceptance. In other words, they have to jump through all the hoops to keep people happy. They had to check their Facebook and their Twitter every five minutes to make sure they were saying everything the right way. Right? But then he has these other group of priests called the Zadok priests. They should keep, verse 15, they shall, those who kept up charge of my sanctuary, the sons who did not go astray, should come near to me and minister to me, and they should stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood they should enter into my sanctuary, they should come near to my table to minister to me and to keep my charge and it shall be that when they enter into the gates of the inner the court, they should be clothed with linen garments. Now, if you lived in the Middle East or whatever, you know that if you wear linen, linen doesn 't make you sweat and he said i don 't want them to wear anything that 's going to make them sweat, and the beautiful thing is that These Zedai priests, they got to minister not for the Lord. He says here, they got to minister to the Lord. In other words, they already had his approval. They already had his acceptance. They already were in a place where they didn't have to earn anything from the Lord. They got to minister to him. And so here's the thing that was going on in this scripture. Listen, both priests, sets of priests, they were anointed. Both were anointed. Both of them carried out the same function, they both carried out the same activity. And the only way you could tell who was the Lord's and who's was not was by who was sweating. <laughs> <laughs> who's sweating? They're worrying about what's gonna happen next, they're worrying about where's the funds coming in, they're worrying about what other people thinking all the time, because they sought to the please people and at some point they have to they stop serving God. Oh, God. Ministry without intimacy could literally be somebody's judgment. I, I literally think this. There, there's some people I know who have lusted so much for ministry that the very thing that they've lusted for has been the, thing, the very thing that God is using to judge them. Wow. And they're trapped and they don't know how to get out. because they settled for a false finish line. And the false finish line is the anointing. <laughs> the anointing was just meant for us to be put into a place where we can minister to him. And when we minister to him, guess what happens? The glory realm shows up. And when the glory shows up, the sweating stops. Because the glory, when the glory shows up, God does all the work. Talk about that in a second. Go with me to Mark, 14th chapter. Here's a really good depiction of this. Mark, the 14th chapter, um, starting at verse 3. When he was in the house of Bethany, the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, pure and and she broke the vial and poured it on his head. We know this familiar story, right? But somewhere indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and money given to the poor. They were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. I like when one translation says, I think it's the Amplified. It says, what she has done to me is a good and beautiful thing. For the poor, you always have with you whatever you wish, but you can you, you can do them good. But you don't always have me. She has done what she could. She has, she has anointed my body before the burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that which was this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of me. And then you hear Judas starts to plan uh, what he's going to do next. But here's the thing. She goes to this house of Simon the leper, Simon was a Pharisee who had leprosy. Jesus heals him. Uh, you can read the, I think, the account in, in Luke chapter 8. I think that's where it, where it is, where uh he he gets healed by the Lord. But now he's caught in this quandary. He has these Pharisee friends, and he has Jesus, and he he's having this encounter with the Lord, and uh so He's trying to work Jesus into his whole little framework. In other words, this is like a, a little political kind of, kind of uh, uh, a party kind of thing going on, not political in terms of uh, you know, Republican or Democrat or like a governmental thing. I mean political like politics, like how can I make the most out of this moment with this Jesus guy? So that's what's going on. And so the disciples are there as well, but the interesting thing is nobody washed Jesus' feet. <laughs> No one's washed Jesus' feet. And so <clears throat> the interesting thing with that, that's the first thing that someone would do. We don't, we, we don't have a good understanding of that because we don't understand what the streets, how bad the streets were in that day. They didn't have, of course, the pavement like we do today. But then also that time period, everything was thrown out in the street. Of course, you had um, horses walking along and horse droppings. And you also had you know just the animals from all the herding that went on in the markets. But well, also, too, human waste was thrown in the streets back then, too. <laughs> so uh, they had these little pots that they kept in the house. So you had to get up and use the restroom in the middle of the night. They didn't have, you know, um, uh, plumbing like we do today. So they would use this pot. And the, the, the woman of the house would get up. And she, as she cleaned up, she would take their refuse and throw it out into the street. So everything was trampled up on in the street. They didn't have nice shoes like we have today, right? They had little sandals. No socks, <laughs> and sometimes as you walked around, you tipped what you should have told. <laughs> and so you get into the house, and then you know it's just you know the first thing that somebody did—they had the servant wash feet. That's the feet. First thing it did. So can you imagine what the house went to smell like? There's, there's another account where the disciples, none of them washed. Uh, each other's feet. And the Bible says that Jesus after dinner washed their feet. You know what that meant? It means that while they were there, the house was full of a stench that everybody wanted to ignore. Right? Some of y'all have teenagers, right? Those guys go out, play soccer, play basketball, and then and the smell of those socks can be pretty atrocious, right? <laughs> I know the dormitories. They see if and I. Good night. <laughs> you walk into the G at the wrong time. Whoosh, it's gonna smell horrible. You know. I know uh, I, I, my my parent, grand, grandparents in the country. They they they're little they're cows and a little dairy farm or whatever. And if the wind blew the wrong direction and all the windows were up and you're trying to eat, you about to, you're about to gag <laughs> because you're like, oh my god, what? <laughs> Somebody closed the window, right? And this is one particular account where Jesus waited for the disciples. And it, of course, you want to wash feet before you eat dinner, right? Nobody washed each other's feet, so Jesus washed their feet after dinner. It's like the Lord was saying, okay, I'm just going to give them an opportunity. And I just want to see who's going to deal with this first. Have you ever noticed how there's a stench in the church? nobody wants to deal with it from time to time? One of it is all the division that's in the church right now. It stinks, it stinks to all high heaven. We're divided more than ever, ideologically, even politically, than ever before. Somebody's gotta recognize there's a stench in the room and deal with it. Not even just the division, but sometimes just the sin that's there in the house that we don't wanna deal with. So. That's kind of what's the situation here. The deal is, everybody else in this story, they they washed everybody else's feet except for Jesus. (laughs) In other words, no one who was anointed ministered to the Lord. No one ministers to him. So he's in this situation being used, but there's this this lady, Mary, most scholars believe, had several demons cast out of her, all that. We know that, and the Bible says she was a, former prostitute and you wonder why would a former prostitute have that much um, have that have have a costly anointing oil the Bible says it's worth a whole year's wages a whole year wages the average American makes like $45,000 a year right so imagine $45,000 worth of perfume that's what she had a whole year's wages of this what would a prostitute Do I mean, why would she have that much money in perfume? You know what I think? I think it was because she had to use it as another way, as an incentive for her to keep doing what she was doing so that she wouldn't feel so bad about what she was doing in terms of prostitution. She kept money and put it aside thinking one day, I'm gonna meet a man who's gonna make all this worth something. Because that perfume that she bought, that she set aside, it was for her wedding night. All right. And why would a prostitute do that? Well, I think she, it was her way of tricking herself into continuing to do what she's doing. Um, give an example of what I'm talking about. About 25 or 30 years ago, I'm 52 now, but when I was in, in college, I went with uh, my friends to a strip club. My first my first and last times going to a strip club. While we were there, My guys who were with me, you know, we're drinking our little Michelobes or whatever. I was backslidden, knucklehead, right? We're drinking our little Michelobes and we're there, and um, our guys uh, ordered a table dance. So they ordered this table dance, and this lady comes to dance at at our table. And my friends began to engage her in conversation, and while I'm talking to her, she's answering them, but she's respond to them, she's, she's responding to them with a conversation that's not even remotely closely related to anything that they're talking about. Like she's in another place, she's in another zone. And when I realized that, it was like a major buzz kill for me. Because I realized, man, this is somebody's daughter, somebody's mother. And I realized and in order for her to do what she was doing, she had to put herself in an altered state of consciousness because she felt so humiliated about what she was doing while she was being used in front of us. I realized that that was my last time in the strip club. But you bring that to the story here, the reason why this lady has all of this money saved up, the reason why she has all this perfume saved up all this period of time, she's basically As she's been a prostitute, she's been thinking, man, one day, I know I'm being used right now, but one day it's all going to be worth it. I'm going to meet the man that's going to make all this worth my while. right?" But she walks into the room and she sees Jesus. (laughs) She sees Jesus and she looks and she sees him being used. You know, because game recognizes game, right? She looks into the room, she sees the situation, and then she noticed how no one valued him. No one cared about him as a person. Everybody's in the room just trying to see what they can get out of him. From the disciples to the Pharisees, the Simon, the leper, who invited them. So she breaks into the room and she begins to weep. And I think part of her weeping was she wept over how he was being used. That broke her heart. I think our heart needs to break today over how the Lord is being used. How we can care more about, how we can shrink-wreck him and sell him. (laughs) From our books, to our CDs, to everything else. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with writing a book to get the message out. But when it becomes more important, when the money becomes more important than the covenant, that's when we got problems, y'all. And so she breaks into the room and she starts washing his feet with her hair and with her tears. And she breaks this alabaster box over him. You know why she breaks the alabaster box over him and gives him this oil that she's been saving up all this time? She's thinking, I'm never, ever going to meet another man who's ever going to mean this much to me. So she pours it out over him. But what do the disciples say? They say, oh, what a waste. We could have took that and used it. could have used it. They cared more about the utilitarian purpose. And as she's worshiping and as she's pouring this over over them, the Lord says out loud to all of them, leave her alone. What she has done to me is a good and beautiful thing. Listen, some things, especially people, especially the Lord, He's meant to be adored and not used. You know, sometimes we get moments of worship and we see people broken and they're bawling their eyes out before the Lord or we see people dancing like crazy or whatever and we sit back and we kind of go, Uh, It doesn't take all that or whatever. And sometimes we want to want to shut them down or whatever when they cry too hard or they're they're, they're, they're just being too exuberant or whatever. And you know what I hear the Lord saying over those people that those moments leave them alone. What they are doing to me is a good and beautiful thing. In other words, they're ministering to him. And it's because we got into this place where we have such a consumer mentality right now in the church. We care more about what things can be shrink-wrapped, put a price tag on, and sold. We care more about what can be used instead of adored. You know, some things just are meant to be wasted. And wasted things sometimes, they're so fragrant, they're so powerful, they fill the whole atmosphere. I remember I bought this expensive bottle of, a perfume for the Havilland once. And it uh, cost hundreds of dollars. I just wanted, wanted to get it for this one time. And, uh, and one of the vials broke and De Havilland was weeping over it. You know, just, it, it, it broke, but the whole house was filled with this fragrance. And the Lord said to her, De Havilland, some things are better broken. I believe there's a level of brokenness that's going to be released in this house that's going to release a fragrance that's going to change all of North Dallas. God is preparing y'all to minister to him. Because there's a difference between the anointing and the glory. The anointing is great, but it still smells like man. (laughs) Something's got to come into the church that doesn't smell like man anymore. And this, this whole thing with Understanding what it is to minister to Him in the, in the whole glory realm. Um, why am I talking like this? I've been, I've been just ruminating over revival. I mean, not not revival when you know Reverend Flip Flop and Brother Wonderful show up. I will talk about when God comes to town, yeah. <laughs> and the presence just comes and just hangs in the place. And um, you know, I'm about thirty years outside of those times when I saw just authentic moves of the spirit happen and you know all y'all in your 20s and your 30s right now don't do what I did back then because I thought it was always I thought it always would just stay like that it doesn't just stay you can take those moments for granted and I I, my heart is broken over I took those moments for granted (laughs) I saw God just come and linger over congregations in different places. I know you talk talking about Toronto or, 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 or down in, uh, down in uh, Pensacola. I'm talking about here in the Metroplex. I saw the presence of God come and just linger for weeks in different places. Powerful, powerful ways. I remember my little church, um, uh, Restoration Church in Euless, I got so hungry for God. I went on a fast. It was in the 90s. I wasn't traveling and doing ministry, just a little guy with a business. But I got hungry for revival. And I went on a fast and I went in that church that Sunday morning. I just started crying out for the manifest presence of God to show up. And sure enough in worship, you know, God showed up in a powerful way. So then uh, the pastor asked me, he said, Hey Will, won't you come up and won't you come up and bless the offering? So I got up to bless the offering, and God turned us into the offering. I went to pray, and as I began to pray, I fell out. Nobody laid his hands on me. I fell out praying. When I finished praying, half the crowd—about 1,500 people in this church—half began weeping uncontrollably. The other half began laughing uncontrollably. I couldn't get off the stage, so the pastor just kind of stepped over me, and and, and preached his message in the middle of weeping and laughing. It was just, just it was just the presence. There was a friend of mine asked me to pray for her because she had this growth on her and she was going to see if it was uh, cancerous. And so I, I went to pray for her. I said, blow, wind, blow. I just did like that. She flew back like 10 feet. She stayed out for three hours. And when she went to the doctor the next day, they not, even, they not only not found cancer, they couldn't find the growth. It was gone. Because when the glory shows up, is just, just another ramp. You know, I, I remember the, one of the things that marked that time period was just the spirit of travail. Spirit of travail, and I hadn't seen it like that in about 20 years. I saw a little trace of it last year at, at Christ for the Nations, but I saw the spirit of travail would just kind of, in other words, just revival prayer would just kind of hover over places. It's hard to describe, but uh, the first time I heard it in a real intense way, I was at a conference here in Dallas uh, called Light the Nations, and while I was while I was there, um, they, you know, they have, to have those walled-off partitions, right, in the conference rooms, and you have one person uh, talking and sharing in this room, and then somebody on the other side talking and sharing, and uh, there's a well-known prophet in this room. It's like you know, it's the it's the early 90s or whatever. And, And uh, the prophetic movement was starting to kick off. So this well-known prophet, everybody was rushing to get in this room, and they were saving seats. My friends, thank God, saved seats for me to be in that room. Right next door to us in this other room was this guy. We didn't know who he was. Some little story about a pulpit that split. His name was Tommy Tenney. We didn't know who he was. No books or anything at that time. And while we are in this other room, next to this other walled-off room, This prophet is talking and all of a sudden we hear something like an airplane and a freight train trying to take off at the same time. And the wall is shaking. And a little prophet guy, being as prophetic as he is, he said, maybe we should stop what we're doing and just go next door. (laughs) Then he went back to what he was doing and then finally he got serious. He said, no, let's just stop what we're doing and go next door. We go next door, bodies everywhere. Spirit of travail hit that place so hard. So the person who was over there was a guy named Tommy Tenney. I got a chance to spend time with him. I had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. He came to Christ for Nations. I believe he's back in that place again, Tracy. He's back in that place of hunger again. But um, <clears throat> we're there. Uh, well, who, who is Tommy Tenney? A lot of y'all probably haven't even heard the story, but uh, he was the guy who gave language to hunger back during that time period for revival, wrote a little book called God Chases. It's probably sold 15 million copies. A lot of people today haven't even read it. But um, the first story in that book talks about how he was at a church in Houston and um, this pastor had asked him to come and speak. Fat, Tommy had been fasting for 10 days. He'd come to, to preach there that Sunday. And uh, just the presence was just so strong in the church that pastor asked him, hey, can you, you know, preach next Sunday. So Tommy canceled plans to go preach somewhere else, stayed at that church, came preached that next Sunday. And then they, they just kind of looked at each other and knew that he needed to stay. So he didn't, he, again, he canceled his other trip to his other place and stayed at that church. So the third time that they're there at this church, the presence of God was so thick in the place, the the worship team couldn't function. They, they couldn't even, they couldn't even get there. They had to get her to sing. They were sobbing so hard. The presence got God was so thick in the place. They could only just somebody was just playing on the keys and he couldn't sing. So he just could play keys. You know, just kind of kept his foot on the, you know, the sustain pedal or whatever and just kind of just tinkled along. And uh, the pastor said to Tommy, he said, are you, are you ready to turn over the service? And Tommy said to him, I'm actually too afraid to even go up and touch the microphone. <laughs> And the pastor said, well, I I, I guess I have a word I feel like I need to share. So the pastor gets up to the pulpit and he reads 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And then he stops and he says, you know, the church has done a good job of seeking God's hand, but now he wants us to seek his face. When he says seek his face, all of a sudden, a a lightning bolt hit inside the church, a thunderclap hit And he hit the pulpit, this huge plexiglass pulpit. And uh, engineers and scientists have looked at this and they said there's no other way this could have happened except it was supernatural. The pulpit split in half, cleanly, right in half. And half of it flew that direction, another half flew this direction. The pastor flew back this direction. (laughs) He stayed out for about a good two, three hours. That's what happened in the church. On the outside of the church, People were driving into what they thought was, you know, they thought they were being early for the second service, but the first service was still going on. And when they got into the parking lot, the presence of God was so thick on the property that people were just throwing their cars in a haphazard part because they couldn't see any longer because they were crying so hard. People were trying to walk into the foyer, but when they got to the foyer, there were just, it was just bodies everywhere. Nobody laid hands on each other, just the presence of God just showed up. Businessmen were tearing off their ties and running to the altar, crying out to God. About that time, Tommy Tenney walked up to the pulpit and said he gave the shortest um, altar call he ever gave in his life. He said, You know, if you're, you're not right with God, now it would be a really good time to get right with God. <laughs> they stayed in that atmosphere for about two years. They had what they call protracted beatings. That's where you have church like every night for two years. And they, they, they said they walked in what they call presence evangelism. In other words, the presence of God would be so strong on them when they went to work, when they went to, you know, to the grocery store or whatever. The presence of God would be so thick on them that people would just weep uncontrollably around them there would be in grocery lines and people be behind them. I remember those times, man. Where I, I remember walking in stores and demons would manifest so I cast out demons of people in stores. The presence of God would be so thick on us in those time periods where people would weep around us and we would just turn around and explain the gospel to them. And they would get saved. That, that was some of those time periods. Tommy Taney to shared something that was so powerful during that time period. He talked about the difference between what we have in our churches right now which the judgment seats and the difference between that and the mercy seat. <laughs> and he talked about the glory realm and the weight of God's glory. You know, the word glory is the word kabod. It means weighty presence. Literally, that's what it means. It's like someone who carries a lot of authority, they carry a lot of weight. He tells a story about this friend of his <clears throat> who's, you know, grossly obese, he had a, a problem with a thyroid or whatever, but he was about... Four, five foot four and, a, and weighed about five or six hundred pounds. He's a very large man. But he was an amazing, amazing apostle, preacher of the gospel, broke open in Indonesia and other places. <clears throat> and this friend of him, his friend of his, his t- told him the story how he would go to different places, and uh, especially friends of his, different folks that he, 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 he pastored, he'd go into their house and he would break chairs. And so he was always embarrassed about breaking chairs. And so for his closest friends, he became frustrated. He said, you know, you would think that they would anticipate me coming to spend time with them. And they would put a chair in their house that could support my weight. He said, I I walk in, I have my coat and my hat, and I look around. But when I can't see a a, a chair that can hold my weight, I I just turn away and I'll weep and I'll make up an excuse and I'll go away. And he said, I'll go to my car and I'll just cry. And Tommy said this, he said, how many times has the weighty presence of God showed up in our churches? God showed up at the back door with his coat in his hands, holding his hat, and he's looking around, but he can't find a place to sit. He can't find anything that can sustain the weight of his glory. So he looks around and he says, you know what? I'll I'll visit, but I can't stay. God's looking for another mercy seat. <laughs> He's looking for a mercy seat. And so you read the scripture there about the mercy seat. This, this seat where you have these two cherubim had their hands raised on either side. And the Bible said that they had, of all the things on that Ark of the Covenant, the wings of the cherubim was to be made of beaten gold. And the reason why I believe it's beaten gold, because beaten worshipers make the base worshipers. In other words, sometimes, you know, the hammer blows of life hit us, and we think, God, why is this all happening? Listen, it's taking us to a place of deeper worship where all we can do is focus is on Him. It said their heads were to be focused on them. And it also said that their hands were to touch one another. With two or three together, that's where he is, what? He's in the midst. God's looking for a place of unity. He's looking for a place where we can come together and focus on him. He's looking for a people who, he's looking for a place to inhabit once again. And I think he wants to take us back to that place of hunger and pursuit like we've never seen before, right, right? So I, I, years ago, about two years after that whole encounter where I was next door to the room where the <laughs> wall was shaking, a friend of mine actually gave me a cassette from what actually happened in that time. I, a cassette, for y'all who don't know, it's this little thing about this big, <laughs> and you take a pencil and put it in either side of it. I turned it into a CD, and I digitized it now, but I, I've, it's been 20-some-odd years. I've kept that sermon with me. It's the most powerful sermon I've ever heard about revival. It's just extemporaneous. It's just off his heart. It's Tommy Tenney talking, but I actually got a recording of what it sounded like that day when Travail hit that room. Y'all want to hear what it sounded like? let yeah. All right, let me, let me play this for you. Mind you, there's only one microphone in the room, all right, and it's the lapel pale mic that's on this that's, that's on him. So this this is what we heard that day.
1: Father, impart to us a broken heart as your heart was broken. Build a place of habitation We turn our back on what is good To seek what is best We want the kebab The glory of God Father thank you for the anointing Thank you for what it does But that still smells like man Something has got to come into the church That has no smell of man on it man die that the glory of God come somebody needs to start praying Moses prayer show me thy glory in Moses dispensation he couldn't have it You just just maybe lightly touch the person next to you. And yes, you know God will come in the midst. <laughs> I can't hardly talk. God will come in the midst.
0: God wants to stir up hunger once again for something authentic, something that's real. God, we thank you for the anointing. But honestly, it still smells like man. We definitely need something now today, God, that doesn't smell like man in the church.
1: If you've been inspired by this message, we invite you to partner with us by visiting storehousedallas.com forward slash give.